Commandments, and we're going to move to the book of Isaiah, and there's really a great correlation between the two studies that I'll talk about in a minute and how they relate. So let's pray first. Lord God, we thank you again so much for all that you've given us and, and who you are, Lord God, for your great salvation, for your mercy, and even for your justice, Lord God, for we can trust you for all things and in all things, Lord God. So I pray as we go through this book over the next, really, which could be years, Lord God, I pray that you would speak to each and every heart, and this morning particularly, Lord God, help us to understand your mercy and your justice. And we pray this in your name. Amen. If you notice, I said maybe the next few years. If you didn't know, Isaiah is a pretty thick book. It is actually 66 chapters. And even if we did one chapter a week, obviously it's going to take over a year. But if you've been with us for any time, you know we don't do a chapter a week. So I think the first chapter will probably be at three weeks. But we'll see as we go along how it will be and how the Lord leads each and every one of us that teach through this book. So I hope you make it through with me. It's going to be exciting for sure. So by way of introduction, let's, so hopefully you found the book of Isaiah. Before we actually get into it, I want to kind of give you what's going on and why the book of Isaiah and what is it about. So the book of Isaiah, if you've tried to read through it or if you've looked at it before, It's a collection of visions, poems, sermons, and writings of a prophet named Isaiah. So they are not arranged in chronological order. For example, when you read through the Gospels or any historical book, it usually takes you from chapter 1 to the end and you follow it chronologically. Well, in the book of Isaiah, it's a little bit different. The way the writings and poems and sermons and prophecies and visions are collected, they're, they're arranged more in a thematic order and you'll see that as we go along through the through Isaiah so don't get confused as you're reading through it and going well it doesn't really make sense how this is here and then that's over here because it's not written in that way and it's very important that we understand that for interpretation purposes so one of the things about the gospel or about Isaiah I just alluded to it is it's called the fifth gospel and the reason for that is because The Savior or the Messiah is alluded to so much throughout the book. And it's also in reference to the salvation of God. You'll see as we go through it that Yahweh is alluded to as the one that can save and the only one that can save his people. And even in the midst of tragedy that they're going through, Isaiah is pleading with the people of God that if you just trust in God, he's going to save you. It might not look like it at this moment because you're going through some things, But ultimately, no, God is in control, and he even alludes to a future Savior and a future restoration of the people of Israel throughout the book. And so when you read through it, again, it'll seem like he's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. And and as we get to those sections, we'll talk about how it's applicable to the time that Isaiah is writing and then also looks forward to a future time. So what is a prophet? Let's start with that. So a prophet is one who speaks on the behalf of God. They warn, they remind the people of God, they tell them, you know what, if you continue in this path, such and such is going to happen. A prophet could even, sometimes is revealed to certain things about from God about the future, things that are going to happen to the far off distance. 
So a prophet is a combination of all those things. They're also a herald of the good news. So as you can see, usually, even in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament, some people who just speak for God and they're not telling of something that's going to happen in the future are called prophets of God. I think of uh, Moses is called a prophet of God. I think even David is considered a prophet, but we don't have anything recorded that they said something was going to happen in the far out future. So that so when we say prophet, don't just think, oh, they're talking about something that hasn't happened yet. Sometimes they're just do, they're giving you warnings about what could happen if you continue in a certain way. A couple other things here. Isaiah, as we go through it, you'll notice, is the most quoted book in the New Testament. The New Testament writers often take writings from Isaiah and apply them in the New Testament times. And that's why it can be said that it is also sometimes alluded to as the fifth gospel because it predicts the coming of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, the future restoration of God's people. And so we'll see all that. Another thing that I want to point out is the time frame that Isaiah, that Isaiah is writing. So I wish I had a big, you know, timeline to give you a sense of where Isaiah is in the biblical picture. But just follow me here. So Isaiah wrote probably from about 740 B.C., so 740 years before Christ. And he wrote for about four, maybe about 40 years or 50 years. So during his lifetime, the things that he wrote that are in the, in the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 are things that he wrote about his lifetime in particular. He addresses also periods of exile. So if you know the history of the nation of Israel, there's a time where they are taken off into Babylon. And Isaiah alludes to that in chapters 40 through 55. And then in chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah alludes to the return of the nation of Israel to the promised land. So that just kind of gives you an idea. He writes about the present time, about a future time, and an either more future time when they are to return. In addition to that, as I mentioned earlier, he also talks about the coming of Jesus Christ and the future reign of God for all eternity. So he covers a lot. So let's go into this now. What is the current situation? What is the state of the nation of Israel at the time of the writing of Isaiah? So as I mentioned when I started, so we just finished the Ten Commandments, right, where God was giving out his, you know, quote-unquote, constitution to the nation of Israel, his covenant of how they are to worship God and how they are to relate to his people. And so that's what the Ten Commandments was about. So now we fast forward about 700 years and we come to the writing of Isaiah. And Isaiah is writing at a time when the people of God have been continually breaking that covenant that was set forth in the Ten Commandments. So they've been breaking it. They've been living in a continuous breaking of God's commandments. Now, not every day and not everybody, but the nation in general has been unfaithful to God. And Isaiah, as we'll see in a moment, is particularly writing to the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel. So if you remember, you have King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. When the nation of Israel was one nation, well, then when Solomon had children, there was a division of of the kingdom of Israel. And you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was considered or was called Israel. 
and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And Isaiah is going to be writing in particularly to Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, at the time of Isaiah's writing, the northern kingdom of Israel has completely backslidden, is in full-blown idolatry. So they rarely worship the God of Israel, who they're named after. They make idols, and they worship them, and they do all the things that the nations around them do. On the other hand, the southern kingdom, which we'll get to in a moment, they are struggling. They go in and out of idolatry. Sometimes they're worshiping idols and then they get called back and they're restored and they worship Yahweh and then they go back and they worship idols and then they worship Yahweh so that's kind of the state of the union for Isaiah's writing so he's writing in particular to that southern kingdom as all this is going on so we've just covered like 700 years of history of the nation of Israel and so all that can be seen and from so starting, you know, we left the Exodus all the way through, you know, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. It, it chronicles all the things that is going on with the kings. So with all that said, let's look at Isaiah chapter one. And so this is what Isaiah writes. Look at verse one. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amaz, or Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And we'll stop right there because I want to point out a few things. Again, this is the vision of Isaiah. Now, chapter 1 is kind of an overview of the state of the union, what's been happening throughout the, his lifetime under the reign of these four kings that are mentioned. And as I said earlier, he's writing concerning Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. And it says Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the capital city of, is, of Judah. So Jerusalem would be the political and the religious capital of Judah. So that's who Isaiah is directing it to. And he's writing during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Four different kings he's writing. And so Let's look at these individual kings and kind of see what was going on during the time of their reign. Let's start with Uzziah. And some verses are going to come up on, on the board just to kind of give you a quick summary of these kings. And if you'd like, you can go back and read through these texts. So 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 says this. Says, speaking of Uzziah, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Only, so he was doing pretty good, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. High places were places off in the mountains where people would go and worship idols. So even though Uzziah was considered a good king and did right what was in God's eyes, he didn't go throughout his kingdom and take away either all the idol worship that was going on. So his people, who he was responsible for, were still making offers to idols in the high places, in the secret places. And so that was going on during Uzziah's life. What about Jotham? Jotham, in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 34 through 35, he was a little bit worse. Look at what it says about him. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. So usually in the kingdoms of Israel, 
the father was the king, and then once he passed away, the oldest son would become king. And so Jotham was Uzziah's, or was Uzziah's son. It says, only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gates of the house of the Lord. So he didn't undo the things that his father had let slide, so to speak. He still allowed those things, right? And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So you can get a sense that Judah, so they're worshiping God on one hand, and on the other hand, they're still worshiping the gods of all the people around them. When they would come into the land, they didn't get rid of them. They didn't totally eradicate all the altars, so they got tripped up. And they would give in to worshiping like everybody else does. Let's look at the next king, Ahaz. So Ahaz, in Second Chronicles 28, 1 through 4, he's really bad. It says this, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right. So the other guys are said to do right, but Ahaz did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. David was held up as the father of all the kings. Look at what he did. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So he was acting like the northern kingdom. He also made, look at what it says, molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hanan, and he burned his sons in fire. So he was offering living sacrifice. His own children, he was allowing them to be burned as sacrifices to these gods. And this was according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So the other kings, if you notice, it was the people that worshipped in the high places. But Ahaz himself, it said, he went and worshipped in those high places. He burned incense to all the abominable idols of the land. And he even offered his own children as sacrifices to these idolatrous gods. So a pretty bad guy. And so Isaiah, as we go through the book of Isaiah, is going to be writing to him as well. And then lastly, probably the only pretty, pretty much right on king during the reign of during the writings of Isaiah is Hezekiah. And I just want to read a few verses about Hezekiah and, and his Summary statement can be found in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 3 through 7. It says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all of his father had done. He removed the high places, so he did what the other kings didn't. He removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah, which was a idol that they worshipped. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehashtan. And he trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there were none like him, among, like him among all the kings of Judah. So Israel had even turned something that Moses had made that was to point to God, and they were started to worship that serpent. And so he broke that as well. That's one of those things when I read it, I was like, I've never read that before. <laughs> I don't remember that. I didn't know that happened. Did anybody, has anybody else read that before? I know you guys are all like hardcore Bible students. Like, yeah, we knew that. Who doesn't know that? Okay, moving on. It says, and so going on to Hezekiah, he trusted the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like king among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. 
For he, I like this, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him whenever he went, or wherever he went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So Hezekiah, for the most part, there were a couple of slip-ups in his life. I mean, he's human, just like us. He was pretty good, especially compared to his father and grandfather and great-grandfather, who we mentioned before. So going back to our text, so this is who Isaiah is receiving these visions, sending out these warnings to. Usually the prophets will go to the king of the nation and the leaders of the nation. Again, that's why it's directed to not only Judah, but to Jerusalem, the center of all things in Judah. So what does Isaiah say about this? Again, so this is kind of the summary of what's contained in the entire book. So it's kind of like a courtroom scene as Isaiah is going to present a case against the nation of Israel, specifically Judah, as he says. He says, listen, verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. So he's kind of like calling heaven and earth to be a witness and a testimony to his words that he's going to proclaim against Judah. It says, For the Lord speaks, Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. So this is the case that Isaiah is bringing against the nation of covenant breakers. Remember the covenant that they established under Moses? And we've just went through that, Ten Commandments. So this is the fallout of it. Sons that I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. So remember, God says, I brought you out of Egypt. I made you my people. I've given you my laws. I've given you the promised land, and this is how you repay me. He says, you've revolted against me. And look at the comparison he makes in verse 3. An ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's manager, but Israel does not know My people do not understand. Their behavior reveals that they truly don't know God. It's one thing to say that you know God and you follow God. It's another to behave like you do. And so that's what he's saying here to the nation of Israel is you don't know and my people do not understand. He continues on in verse 4. Alas, And look at the way he describes a nation. Sinful nation. People weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. So he's saying your parents, your ancestors were evildoers. And then he continues, sons who act corruptly. So not only are your ancestors bad, but you yourselves are bad. Because you continue in these sins. Remember as he's describing the sins within Uh, the different kings, it was the people that are described as going up to the high places a lot of the times. So offsprings of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away from Him. So the case against the covenant breakers of Israel, again, if you want to jot these down, you can, but these are the five ways that they're described. They've revolted against God. So again, these are people who are God's people. Ancestors of all those who've been brought out of Egypt who worship God, but they also worship in the high places. 
God does not share his glory. You cannot serve God and serve idols. And he looks at it as you've revolted against me. So that's what he says. You've revolted against me. You don't know me, right? Your, your ancestors didn't know me. You don't know me. You're corrupt. You've abandoned the Lord. You despise the Holy One of Israel, and you have turned away from the Holy Lord of Israel. Those are the words that Isaiah is given to describe the nation Israel. Remember, this is God's covenant people. God's, remember, we talked about God's special people that I've made for myself, and they've left him with their hearts. I think that the strongest illustration can be a marriage. You've covenanted yourself with your spouse, but yet you're cheating on them. That's the imagery that God talks about a lot through the prophets. He talks about committing spiritual adultery, sleeping with another God, so to speak. So that's the nation of Israel. That's the case against them. It's like, this is what you guys have been doing for all these years. And so what's the punishment? He describes a little bit of that punishment. In verse 5, let's look at verse 5. Verses 5 through 80 says this. So where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? So they have been afflicted by God, punished by God. Justice is being served by God because they've broken their covenant with God. And the prophet is saying, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? It's kind of like punishment dished out to a child. Like, how long are you going to keep getting, you know, put on restriction before you learn? How long am I going to take away this from you or take away that from you before you learn? This is what God is saying to the nation of Israel. Again, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? And look at what he says. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. So the depiction is is that Israel is suffering physically. They're bruised up. They don't even have bandages to bruise them, but they don't realize it. Like God has left, like took his hand of restraint off of them, and they're suffering. And God's doing that as an act of mercy so that they'll realize that they're suffering and they'll do what? Return to God. But they're not doing that. And he's like, how long will you allow this to happen? How long before you wake up? I remember myself as a teenager, I was like on restriction every week. My mom and dad would put me on restriction from, you know, Saturday or Friday night to Sunday or whatever it was. And then I'd get off and then I'd mess up again on Monday. Back on restriction. I I remember that so vividly, you know. Thanks, mom, for doing that. That was when we actually had, you know, telephones that you talked on that were connected to the wall. So that would get ripped out of my room every Monday because I'd mess up. I wouldn't learn. They're like, how long are you going to do this, Robert, before you learn? I don't know how long. Probably a long time before I actually learn. But this is what's happened with the nation of Israel. How long will you guys continue to be going through this before you learn? If you've read the book of, of Judges, or any, you know, through the other historical books of the Old Testament, you see that happening over and again. We read in Israel, you know, Israel is blessed by God, and then they turn from God, and then oppression comes on them. What do they do? They cry out to God. God delivers them. They have a a time of peace and blessing, and then they do it again, over and over again. The nation of Israel goes through that. 
So this is what Isaiah is addressing. How long will you allow that to happen? Now, these are consequences that God has allowed to happen to them because they've broken covenant. So there's physical uh, suffering, and then there's also the suffering of their land. Look at verses 7 through 8. He says, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. In your presence, it is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So the picture is, is there's this luscious land that they had. It is being devoured and your great territory, your great city that you were promised is left desolate. And you're like a little hut in the middle of the field. That's not what the nation of Israel was supposed to be like, right? God promised them, if you follow my commands, I will bless you. I will prosper you wherever you go. And when you go into a land, you will conquer everybody and you, you know, it'll be great. That was part of the covenant blessings if they kept covenant. But because they didn't keep covenant, they're suffering the curses of the covenant. And I want to go back to the book of Deuteronomy to show you a few of those um, cursings that are spelled out right here in Isaiah. You can see the parallels. So you can either uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy 28 or just watch up on the board or the, the screen. So in Deuteronomy 28, just starting in verse 1, this is what, um, this is what God is commanding. He says, now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God. So if you do what God's called you to do, and be careful to do all his commandments which I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. So that was the promise to the nation of Israel. If you guys obey my commandments, if you keep covenant with me, and Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land. He's saying, if you guys do these things, I'm going to set you up on high. Remember, you're my peculiar people. You're to be my priest and uh, kings to all the world to show forth the praises of God, to show forth how awesome God is. That's why he's made Israel who they are. You know, you're going to be high above the nations for that purpose. Not to say, hey, we're so great, but more to say our God is so great. So that's the, the start of it. But drop down to verse 15, because verse 15 turns to like, but if you don't do what I says, look at what he says here. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And if you read through the chapter, it's like, this will happen, this will happen, and that will happen. But I just want to show you a few verses because these are the ones that uh, what Isaiah is talking about. So drop down to verse 18. He says, Cursed shall the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. Remember, Isaiah talked about their land. So cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. So their land, their produce, their livestock is not going to prosper. Why? Because they've broken covenant with God. Drop down to verse uh, 33. He says, he's talking about them. He says, 
and he's talking about invaders coming into the land, which is eventually what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. And if you remember, which I just read about in Isaiah chapter 1, he talked about strangers in the land. This is part of the curse. He says, the people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of all your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. Again, this is what Isaiah is addressing in Isaiah chapter 1. Some, you know, so you might read through Isaiah and go, man, God is pretty harsh. But no, this was laid out for them as, again, their constitution in the very beginning. If you break these laws, this is what's going to happen. Drop down to verse 35. Verse 35. The Lord will strike you on the knees and the legs with sore boils, from which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your feet to the crown of your head. Isn't this what Isaiah talked about? About like how long will you allow these things to happen? You have sores and there's nobody to bandage them. Again, these are part of the covenant curses on the nation Israel. So turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because this is God's justice coming down on the nation of Israel. And he's forewarning them. So this is the prophet Moses forewarning Israel. These are the things that are going to happen if you do A, B, and C or don't do A, B, and C. But even in the midst of God's justice, there's always the other side of God's mercy. And that's why I entitled this morning's message, The Justice and Mercy of God. Because look at verse 30, or chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. So chapter 30 is describing that even because God knows what's going to happen in the future, and as he's speaking through Moses, he's saying, okay, so you guys are going to eventually break my covenant because I know how you are. I'm going to send a nation to carry you away, which is going to happen later on in, in the history of Israel in our text. But then I'm going to, in my mercy, bring you back. And this is what is addressed in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So look at this. He says, so it shall be when all these things have come upon you. All what things? All these curses that are described in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So it shall be when all these have come upon you, blessings and the curse, okay, which I have set before you, and you call, and you call them to mind in the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Again, God disciplines so that you'll wake up and you'll realize I'm in a bad place. Again, that's, again, Isaiah, right? How long will you allow this to happen? How long will you be stricken? And so this is what uh, God is saying here through Moses in chapter 30, right? So, so when you call to mind in the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, so the picture is Israel's in captivity, and now they're remembering, hey, we are here because we didn't follow God's commands. Look at what God says in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 30. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him. And with all your heart and soul, according to all that I commanded, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you. And again, from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. So this is God's mercy. He's like, even though you've been disciplined because God is just and he's a loving father, he disciplines them. He says, if you realize it, and you repent, you and all your children, and you follow after me and do all that I've commanded, I will bring you back, right? That's what he's saying. I'm going to have compassion. I'm going to gather all of you. Look at verse 4. 
And if you're outcast or on the ends of the earth from where the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. Talking about bringing him back to himself, bringing him back to the promised land. The Lord your God, verse 5, will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That's the mercy of God. So God disciplines to kind of wake you up. Hey, you've fallen away, Israel. Wake up. And this is what Isaiah is telling the nation of Israel, and again, in particular, the southern tribe of Judah. That, hey, all these things have been prophesied. And even if God scatters the nation of Israel, if they return to him and follow after him, then he will bring them back to the promised land. So let's go back to our text and look at the last verse. Because this is exactly what's said in verse 9. So verses 2 through 8, we've kind of seen the justice of God being enacted on the nation or of, of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And look at verse 9. Isaiah says this, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. It's only the grace of God or the mercy of God that has prevented Judah from totally being wiped out from the face of the earth from suffering like Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroyed that city. He took out all the righteous people, the few that were left, and destroyed it. And here the prophet Isaiah is saying, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, basically unless God was merciful or not merciful, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would suffer total destruction. But again, you see that in the midst of God's justice, There's also God's mercy. And so that's the beginning of the book of Isaiah. So what can we take from that? Let's find some application in this. As you look through that, and you might be thinking, well, what I don't want you to do is say, well, I'm I'm Israel. Don't put yourself in Israel's spot. That I have to keep covenant and obey every little thing that God says, and then he will bless me. And if I don't do it, he's going to punish me. That's not what we're saying, right? God could do that, and he's within his right for doing that, but we're talking specifically about the nation of Israel. They were called to keep covenant God with God in this way. But there's some similarities that we can take for an application for each and every one of us. So to do that, let's turn to the book of Romans. So we're going to leave Isaiah and find application in the book of Romans, just a general application in making some comparisons. So Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 18, because guess what? All of humanity, in some sense, has broken covenant with God. This is what Romans chapter 3 says. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So when he says Jews or Greeks, he's saying Jews and everybody else. That would include, if you're not Jewish, that includes you and me. So he's saying every one of us is guilty before God. Look at what it says. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, the same language that Isaiah wrote. There is none who seek for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. 
There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth full is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in the past, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So the Apostle Paul right here is making an indictment similar to Isaiah that there is nobody in the world that is righteous before God. Each and every one of us, you and me, is guilty before God because we have broken God's commands in some way. So just like the nation of Israel had broken covenant, each and every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we have broken covenant with God. So then what's left for us if we've broken covenant God? Well, if you break covenant with God, just like in the Old Testament, the New Testament is going to tell us we deserve punishment. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans six twenty-three says this, For the wages of sin... So if you've sinned, this is what our reward is. The wages of sin is death. That's it. You don't have to raise your hand because I know each and every one of you, including me, has sinned. Therefore, we're going to die. That is the result of sin starting in the Garden of Eden. Because we have the soul that sins, Scripture says, shall surely die. Death is a curse because of sin. So for the wages of sin is death, so that's God's justice. But look at God's mercy. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have broken covenant. All humanity has broken covenant with God, and we all deserve punishment. But God demonstrated his mercy towards us. Turn uh, back to Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It says that, but God demonstrated his own love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Or excuse me, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is the mercy of God. We've broken covenant with God. Therefore, each and every one of us deserves God's justice. But God in his mercy and in his love has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die and take that punishment for us. That is God's mercy. It is like going back to Isaiah where he said, but if God didn't spare a few of us, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. If God were to leave us to our own selves, we would all suffer eternal death. But God demonstrated his mercy towards us. He demonstrated his love towards us that all that justifiable wrath that each and every one of us deserves and all of humanity deserves was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, who took that pain, took that suffering, took our penalty upon himself. So what does that mean for us? So what should we do? Turn to Romans chapter 10. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Romans 10, verses 8 through 11 says this. But what does it say? The word is near you you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Okay, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, 
So because of all these things, this is what the Apostle Paul is pleading with all of humanity. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in order to have the justice of God applied to Christ and have you forgiven, you must believe that what? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth the same thing, and you will be saved. So you avoid the wrath of God if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And verse 10 goes on, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And Isaiah is going to speak about these things as we go through the book of Isaiah. But again, for a point of application, that's the message to us, that each and every one of us, all of humanity is a covenant breaker. And we deserve punishment for breaking covenant with God. But again, God demonstrated his mercy towards us, his love towards us, that the just wrath of God was poured about poured on his son Jesus Christ who bore our sins bore our iniquity again taken from Isaiah and if we believe in that confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead we shall have eternal forgiveness and eternal life it's given to each and every person who would believe so you can see the justice of God and the mercy of God working together Because if God were to leave us on our own, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But praise God, he didn't. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the vision that you gave to the prophet Isaiah. As we just had a little taste of it this morning, we see your righteous justice upon all mankind. But even more so, we see your righteous mercy given to all mankind. And as we read through the God through through the book of Romans, Lord God, that you offer to all who would believe in their heart eternal life. If we believe that the wrath of God was poured out on your son, Jesus Christ, and that you raised him from the dead, then we shall be saved. I pray this morning, Lord God, that every person in this room would truly believe that. That with their mouth they would confess you as Lord and in their heart they would believe you as Lord and believe that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. They would believe on your atoning work. I pray that, Lord God, for each and every person in this room. And we would leave this room knowing we have eternal life, that we have forgiveness of sin because of what you have done. And that we would not only acknowledge that with our mouth but we would truly believe in our hearts and we would leave this place living as we do believe those things and so i also pray lord god this morning that if there's anybody in this room who's in a place in their life where they have not confessed you as lord and believed in their heart that that you have raised jesus christ from the dead that they would do that this morning I pray this morning, Lord God, as we close in worship, that they would walk to the back of the room, that they would talk to somebody back there who could pray with them about this commitment that they make to you, believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth that you've raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and they would experience true eternal life 
and true forgiveness of their sins. We thank you, Lord God, for your justice, and we thank you for your mercy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.